Yeah. Right. So uh, we are actually looking at the idea of Chaucer, and there are a few comments about Chaucer's writing. Right. Uh, of course, I think if you can get this book by S. S. Hussey, right? That's the one which I looked at uh, when I was studying the the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, right? And it talks about the language because uh, S. S. Hussey is a language uh, scholar, right? And he's actually taking us to uh, Chaucer and he's talking about Chaucer's use of Middle English and what the Middle English means, right? So that's one of the myths, right? But important points that are mentioned by Hudson is that Chaucer sees three different kings. That is, one is Edward III, the second is Richard II, and uh, he also sees Henry IV ascend to the throne, right? So, uh, yeah. Right, so uh, that's so. These are the three bits that we have, right? Uh, and what is important is with each ruler comes a different kind of political practice, a different kind of uh, what you call laws which are given to people, right? All those kind of things happen when we're talking about uh, Chaucer. Right now, uh, of course, it's also saying that the age of the king or the political kind of thing that we have that is the policies at this point of time, and you're actually talking like seasons, right? This is what happens in winter, this is what happens in summer, this is what happens in spring, this is what happens in autumn, right? Yeah, and with each ruler, you're talking in somewhat similar terms not exactly similar, right? Yeah, and I think that's something that we have to think about because uh, each king brings reform, right? The people react differently, like in the, uh, uh, in the time of Richard II, uh, there are a lot of revolts which take place, right? And peasant revolts, right? Which we already know about, right? And uh, maybe the, the king is losing clout Maybe the peasants have become more in part. All those kind of things we dealt with when we were dealing with this person called GM Trevelyan, right? And of course, we were also disappointed with Trevelyan's treatment. Yeah, okay. But what is interesting is uh, Hudson, as a literary person, is talking about what kind of a man Chaucer was, right? What kind of wealth did he get to the English uh, literature, right? And the, he doesn't really talk about the language, right? But he's talking about English literature, right? And the kind of influence Europe had on him, right? So he's actually charting three different phases of Chaucer. The Italian phase, the French phase, and the English phase, right? Now, this is something I think is important because I remember when I was a student, we had a very interesting paper which was called The Background of European Literature to English Studies, right? Now that was, now I realize as a teacher, how you pass off a course as English, right? 
Yeah. So actually, it was European literature, and we were studying it as a background to English literature. But nobody who taught the course ever talked about how does it become the background to English literature, right? Yeah. And what happens and what is interesting in the book is that uh, Hudson is actually giving us a glimpse into the antecedents of English literature, right? Yeah, and he's not taking us to the Greeks and the Romans. If he's taking us to the Romans, he's taking us through Chaucer to the courts of Italy, right? Yeah, and if he's talking about what happens to, to all that, right? He's talking about Troilus and Chrysidi, right? Yeah, which is something, uh, which is a long poem that Chaucer writes, right? And uh, when you study Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, you might like to look at Troilus and Cressida, right? Yeah, that's Chaucer's long poem and Shakespeare's is a play, right? And what is the difference between Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida? What is the difference between Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida? We must uh, probably account for the the amount of more material that Shakespeare had access to when uh, he writes his Troilus and Cressida, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, what is interesting, a point that Hudson is making is that Chaucer is actually the Renaissance man, right? Yeah. This the the kind of uh, early uh, shoots of the Renaissance are already there in Italy when he is a person in the Italian courts, right? So that's one of the things that is important to think about. How do you get influenced, right? Or how does your travel, your journey, your meeting with people influence uh, other people, right? Yeah. And uh, that's something that is important, right? And how does it influence your work, right? I've traveled to so many places. How does that come into my work, right? Uh, this is a literary kind of device, and this is important in your study of literature. For the simple, of course, it's very, very traditional. It's very conservative. It's very traditional, and it's very, very English, right? I don't know if other people do it, right? But I don't know how German literature, French literature, and all are taught, right? Uh, in their respective disciplines. But what is interesting about English literature, uh, the historical approach is also linked to the life of the person, right? And when you study Romanticism, you'll come to know that this is an approach that takes place only after the Romantic Age, yeah? Because before the Romantic Age, nobody bothered about the life of the artist or the life of the writer, right? Yeah, and it's only after the Romantic Age there's so much given to the life of the author, the life of the artist, because that's a revolution. And you say that the artist makes something out of the age or out of the material that is available to him or her, right? So uh, we are talking about Hudson, who is in the Victorian age, 
and he is actually writing about what is happening to uh, to literature, right, from the age of Chaucer to the present, right? Yeah, and the conservative stand is he's talking about the life of Chaucer, which is a very romantic way of writing because I'm saying romantic not about the romances that Chaucer is writing about but I'm talking about the style of writing, the thought of writing and the romantics of the people who talk, thought about the mind, the influences on the mind, the influence on the imagination, right? That's exactly what the theoretical kind of thrust was, right? And the idea of looking at nature, etc. That's a different story. But the idea of the biographical approach to literature, which today perhaps we don't even care for, right? That is, today we are more oriented to the idea of the work of the critic, right? We are actually talking about uh, the work of the writer, right? And we are looking at the work as a work after you have a man called I. Richards in the 20th century who asks people to respond to poems individually without knowing who the poet is, right? Yeah, so today we might not like this kind of a biographical account. Right? But what is important about the study of literature as a discipline right, is something else, right? where we take into account the biography of the person. Right? And these are the things that happen to the person. And we also have something after the Victorian age is called determinism, right? which is actually something that comes up when you have something called Darwinism. Right? Yeah, and we apply it to people who are even before Darwin, right? We are actually talking about three phases in the life of Chaucer, right? Yeah, uh, that's probably something that we do. Yeah, I remember when I was studying Auden, W. H. Auden, you have three phases one is the chemistry phase, one is the Marxist phase, and one is the existential phase, right? Yeah, so you actually see. There are three phases which actually are very strong, right? But what Chaucer, do, uh, what Hudson is doing here is saying there is one strain of what you call the Italian phase, there's one strain of what you call the French uh, phase, right? And there's one strain of what you call the English phase, right? Yeah? And uh, it's, it's a very beautiful idea in as much as we're talking about all these cultures, all these traditions, all these literatures being brought by Chaucer to make the English uh, language and literature into what it is, right? Because he's right at the head, if you like, of something called English literature, right? I wouldn't like to call him the father because the father has got a bad name today, right? And if you call somebody the father of English literature, and all those kind of things which are bad ways of talking about it and our examinations always do that, right? Uh, Chaucer is the father of English literature, right? An essay on that, right? Yeah. Uh, so he's at the head of a tradition, right? Not that he's great. Yeah, I think that's important, right? You might be the head at the head of the tradition and you might not be great at all, right? But because you've written, right? And you've written something different and you're noted and uh, many people read you, right, and they try to con continue in your tradition or at least take inspiration from you, right, 
that is what becomes important, right? Of course, what Hudson forgets is he's talking about uh, he's talking about Wycliffe, he's talking about Chaucer, right? And he's talking about Chaucer writing in something that we call the vernacular, right? And for all the people who do not know what the vernacular is, you have two ideas of the vernacular. You have the classical versus the vernacular, right? Which is similar to the uh, the classical versus the bashas, right? Which we have in India, right? And it's also similar to the idea of uh, the the idea of English and all the so-called vernacular languages, which are not really vernacular, but these are what you call today we call them modern Indian languages, right? That is Gujarati, Hindi, Marathi, and all the languages we have in India. Uh, in the British times, we call them the vernacular because we are using a Roman term where Latin is a language of the ruler and all the rest is the language of the vernacular, right? So, Latin is a language of the ruler and all the other languages are called vernaculars because they are not the language of the ruler, right? So, we have these two ideas of the vernacular and what is interesting is Chaucer is using uh, in literature, this is something that was done uh, maybe even more. They say that he, he might have met Petrarch and Boccaccio. Yeah? But the one who actually takes the trouble to make a statement and a theoretical statement right, is a man called Dante, right? who is 40 years uh, older than Petrarch. Right? And Dante is important because Dante is, belongs to a group of people who are called the Still Novistas, right? Still Novistas uh, is coming in with a new kind of poetry, yeah? And uh, yeah, so uh, what they do is uh, you have the idea of a different voice of poetry, the idea of writing vernacular poetry, right? And Italian was a vernacular as compared to the Latin, right? Yeah, though the Romans uh, get their language called Italian, which is a remaking of the local language of the place. And the Greeks do that and give an alphabet to the language, right? But Latin is a language that the Greeks create, the Greek slaves create actually, right? For the Roman masters, right? And that's, uh, and of course it has a higher status than the idea of the vernacular Italian, right? And Dante does something very, very important because Italian, uh, Latin is the language of the day. The Bible is translated into Latin, right? And the Latin Vulgate is what everybody has, right? Nobody calls it a translation, right? But actually, it's a translation out of Greek, the Greek Bible, and all the other languages that are uh, from the Middle East, Aramaic, Arabic, all sorts of other languages, right? Which are old in uh, their conception, right? And that's a work of a man called Saint Jerome, right? Uh, he's called a saint, but uh, this uh, person um, who actually puts the Bible together with a lot of problems, right? Yeah, and of course, you have the language of the Bible, which is called the Latin Vulgate, right? 
and vulgate is something called vulgar right yeah and this wonderful man called dante writes a treatise which is important right and this treatise is called the vulgaris eloquentia right and of course there is a critic by the name of uh, spiller robert spiller right who's talking about how bold a step dante takes when he writes the vulgaris eloquentia it's like saying we are talking about pop eloquence right yeah and that's something uh we've seen in our own age right so suddenly you have uh one of the bands which were banned in britain because of the vulgarity right and vulgar has assumed a different meaning vulgar means common right so when you talk about the bible in the latin vulgate that is the the ordinary language of ordinary people right yeah and uh, when dante writes the vulgaris eloquentia he's saying he's actually making a case out for writing in your own language right so if you have a lot of people writing gujarati okay and marathi and all those kind of things right that's the kind of thing that uh, also uh, is something that moves away from writing in english right so you have a lot of people like that of course we've got or writing in sanskrit right yeah so you write in marathi gujarati malayalam whatever you want assamese right yeah and what do you do with that is you you write in your own language and you have your literature in your own language right yeah and if you even have a dialect like i think we talked about jersey right jersey is a novel right and the people use this kind of a it's not really a dialect it's a kind of a a cant which they use right and all these people who take charas right uh actually use that language right yeah and uh many people say that if you translate that it becomes uh, not even half as potent as the real uh, language right so if you want to read the book charsi you have to actually live with the people who are called charsis right and try to uh, get into their practices and then you might understand the book right that's one of the approaches the bad approaches uh translate the book and read the translation right yeah so you have two approaches to that right so when uh, dante is writing the vulgaris eloquentia he's actually making a very very important political point right which also get repeated by a man called wycliffe who we are going to talk about because he had the first vernacular bible right so vernacularization is not really against the church right but is against the latinate customs right it's against customs of rome right at one level and uh, it's against so that's what dante does right and again again this is a renaissance idea which happens though dante is a medieval man and petrarch is a medieval man right now the book is talking about the crimes of the church right it's talking about the good priest and the bad priest right is talking about the nuns and what happens to the nuns mother mel gandhin right and uh, the her assistant right yeah so what is the hierarchy of the convent what is the hierarchy of the church what is all this kind of uh, false belief that people have right and the idea of travel which is something very important and the wife of bath 
becomes an important person because she's also traveled to different parts of the world or maybe Europe at least, right? And that's something that's important, right? Yeah, so at one level, uh, we're talking about Mokesio, right? Uh, the Decor Maron, right? Which is very much like Trosser's Canterbury Tales and I'm sure you've already gotten all that, right? But it's also about the idea of uh, talking about uh, sexual attraction, right? Uh, though they don't use the word sexuality in any of those things, right? But Chaucer is very explicit. Uh, if you have uh, other kinds of reading of Chaucer, right? He's very explicit about sexual organs and the sexual act, right? So I don't think, uh, uh, and many people would say, well, if you read Chaucer, it's actually reading a lot of pornography, right? Yeah, so that is uh, taking it to another level and another limit, right? Yeah, and tell me when you want me to stop, okay? Because I might just get carried away, right? Yeah, so what is interesting is uh, when we're talking about the kind of things that the churchmen do, right? Uh, you must remember also that Petrarch was a monk, right? He's talking about Petrarch over here and we in literature think about Petrarch as, or the Petrarch and sonnet, though the sonnet was already in uh, place 250 years before Petrarch, right? And Dante gives a different shape to the sonnet, right? Uh, and you might like to read his, it's translated as a new life, right? Yeah, or in Italian it's La Vita Nova, right? La Vita Nova is the new life, right? And is actually talking about this group of poets called the Still Novistas, right? And they write in a different idiom and a different language, right? And the most important thing is they write in Italian, yeah? They don't write in Latin and they try to write in Italian. And that's when you have Petrarch who comes much after Dante and who actually does a lot to change the way of writing, right? And of course, Dante has already put the sonnet and given a different kind of expression to the sonnet. That is, he's got three voices in the sonnet, right? One for, okay? So we have this idea of the dialogue sonnet, which is something that belongs to a group, uh, a person in the group of Dante, that is uh, a man called Keko, right? That's if you want to say the C-E-C-O, right? Or you have Checho, right? So these are two ways it's pronounced, right? Yeah, and it's Kikero or Cicero, right? Depending how English you want to be, right? Yeah, but this man called Keko, he's very interesting because he writes dialogue sonnets, right? He also has his sonnet woman called uh, Bicina, right? Yeah, and she's uh, not... A, so when Shakespeare writes his, shall I compare it to a summer's day? The art more lovely and more fair, right? And all those kind of things, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, when you have Sonnet 130 from Shakespeare, right? My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun, right? We're already talking about what Keko, what Dante, and what other people are doing, right? Yeah. So these things have already been in place, right? And by and large, perhaps the first person to talk about Petrarch in England is Dante, is uh, Chaucer, right? Yeah, and he actually is translating a sonnet of Petrarch 
not in sonnet form, that is to wait for Wyatt and Son, right? To actually get the sonnet, import the sonnet into England, right? So that's something that uh, Chaucer doesn't do. But what Chaucer does do is uh, that the Italian tradition, the tradition of Dante, right, uh, about writing in English is something that is put in place, right? And of course, he goes, uh, uh, he is elevated to uh, a page boy, that's what it says, that's all we know about him, right? He's elevated to the page boy and he works for some kind of house of honor and then he gets elevated and then he's sent to the courts of Italy and then he, uh, the courts of France, right? So you have an Italian phase, a French phase, right? And the idea is uh, what Graham Greene gives you in the idea that the place makes you, right? Yeah. So the place makes you. If you stay in a place, and that's still something that writers want to write about or uh, like the place to influence you, right? Like for instance, if you ask me what do I think of Baroda, right? Or what in my Baroda phase of existence, right? I say the most important thing that Baroda gives me is first the guitar, right? Yeah, because I, I got a guitar when I was here after my PhD and I started playing it and I learned it however badly or well I've learned it, right? It's a classical guitar, whatever that means, right? So that's a very important part of my tryst with uh, Baroda. Right? So, when you're talking about the Italian phase, okay, and how does the culture influence you, right? So that's something that is very important for us as literature people, right? We're talking about cultural influences, right? And literature is one of those cultural influences, right? Yeah? And if you read a lot of literature, you'll definitely be affected by the culture to some extent or the other, even if you read it from a distance. Right? So uh, that's something that we all have to be aware of, that we are talking about being influenced. Right? And if our wonderful government doesn't want us to do and read English literature or European literature, first of all they don't even have those ideas, right? but if they do and they are thinking of doing that, then we are in trouble, right? largely because they say, well, this is a bad culture and this is a good culture and no culture is good or bad, like no language is good or bad. Right? So I think uh, these are some assumptions that people have about that, right? And Hudson is giving you a different kind of an attitude, right? It's saying, he's actually saying, how does the culture work on you? What do you get back and how do you enrich your culture by learning from somebody else? Which is still a very important idea in England, right? And it keeps repeating when you take Addison and Steele, or you take Shakespeare, or you take Marlowe, or you take W. Jordan, or you take Ted Hughes, right? Or you take anybody else, right? Yeah? So the idea is, how does another culture influence me? Can I speak the language of that culture? Maybe it's Italian, but if it's the language of street boys, right? Can I speak that language, right? The street musicians, the street boys, right? Those are languages that are important, right? Because that means the culture has influenced me, right? Yeah? Or can I live in a tribal community 
or a community of criminals or Naxalites or any of those kind of communities, right? And does some of that culture rub onto me, right? Yeah. And if that culture rubs onto me, then and I keep writing, then you'll find that I'm saying something different, right? Now I talked about my own tryst with Baroda, right? One of it is classical music, right? But the other thing is uh, the DRS which we have in the department, which now doesn't exist anymore, right? Was an important kind of uh, influence in me, right? Because the idea of the political, what is the political happen, right? The ways that people think about the region from an Indian perspective and all the other political kinds of perspectives, right? Uh, which was not something that I thought about in as much depth as it happened over here, right? And the introduction to liberation theology, to Latin American literature, right? So these are all my Baroda phases, if you like, right? Yeah? So the question is, who do you come into contact with and how does it influence you, right? And I said some time ago that these are still a very popular way of, or a very important kind of an educational experience of artists, right? And we must remember that this is something that's still something that happens in Paris, right? Uh, the Latin Quarter, as it's called, right? That's where you have artists of different kinds meeting each other, right? So a painter will meet a poet, right? Or a painter will meet a musician, right? And I have to see and interact with the musician and learn from them, right? So that's a different art. I talk about uh, visual art, somebody talks about performance art, right? And somebody talks about science, right? All those things come together, right? And that's a big influence on me because every time I open my mind, and every time I think, uh, I, every time I open my mouth, I'm forced to think in a certain manner and articulate myself in a certain manner, right? So they say that he met Bokesho and he met, met Petra, right? And he might have talked about poetry. We don't know how they interacted. Did they interact? Did they find themselves or each other disgusting? All those things are important for us to think of, right? Yeah. But whether he met them or don't, uh, didn't meet them, we don't really know, right? And I think uh, we can just speculate about that, right? What we do know is he's translated a sonnet of Petrarch, right? One, right? Did he know, did he know that Petrarch, uh, like all the monks, not all, but many of them who were living a double life, right? And as we know, when we study Trevelyan, uh, the idea of a lot of these people who went to study in the church was poverty, right? That's why they went there and they got a degree and after that they got a job and they worked for the Lord, etc. They didn't do church work by and large, though they were church men, right? They did uh, economic accounting, they did management of estates, they, okay, the live estates, that is, the production and the consumption, the, the production of uh, wheat and uh, uh, grains and all that kind of thing, barley and all those things they did, right? Yeah. So uh, the education was used for something else, right? And of course, you have a lot of sexual kinds of liaisons, which today maybe we don't 
think about them very seriously and maybe even in Chaucer's day they were not thought about as a great aberration right yeah it's only after the Victorian age that uh, um, uh, a priest or, or in the in the church uh, many people would be accepting of the fact that the idea of a priest as a celibate is something artificial right yeah and that's why when a priest has a sexual liaison with somebody without getting married right and has a child like Petra outside marriage right because he, he was a uh, friar minor, which m most people who study Petrarch don't even know about, yeah, uh, uh, talk about Petrarch and the Petrarchan uh, sonnet, don't even know about, right, yeah, so, and he had a, an illegitimate child, in fact, you might like to read his book, which is called uh, The Secret, The Secret Book, right, or The Secret, yeah, something like that, right, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the right name. Uh, what is interesting about it is like Augustine's confessions, right? Yeah, where Augustine is talking to God, Petra reworks that, okay? My secret book, right? Yeah, and what he does is he is talking to Augustine, right? And he's talking about what a horrible life he's lived. And Augustine said, no, be happy that you've lived this kind of romantic life, a sexual life, etc. Right? So you might like to look at that, uh, these two little books that you have, right? I have both of them, but I don't know whether I have them here, right? Uh, that's uh, Dante and Petrarch, because I worked on an Italian form called the Summit, right? Yeah. So when we're talking about Italian developments, right, the English language and the English literature hadn't reached there at all, because if we say that Chaucer is a contemporary of Petrarch, and he met Boccaccio, right? Yeah, so the Decameron and uh, Petrarch's uh, Tolora, etc., etc., yeah, all these things were already more than 250 years old and they were already writing sonnets in Italian, right? They were already writing uh, uh, this, uh, uh, what is this called? Uh, not, oh, yeah, Ovid was writing, yeah, but you also have. Who writes this? Uh, the Aeneid, right? Virgil, yeah? So Virgil is writing the Aeneid, right? Yeah? So all those things have already happened, right? So you have a literary epic like the, the Aeneid, you have sonnets already written and people uh, writing in their own language, right? Yeah? So all those kind of things are, have already happened, right? Yeah, when we're talking about Virgil and all that, that's still in the classical period, yeah, or the the, the great period that is uh, of Augustine or Augustus Caesar, where people are imitating the Greek literature and they're just translating uh, in very sophisticated, in a very sophisticated manner into Latin, right? Yeah, so that as one level is important to think about. Yeah, where you have. Uh, you have somebody else's epic, you have somebody else's poetry, and you make it your own by translation, right? And of course, that becomes the standard for writing uh, literature of your own, and that's when the tradition from writing literary epics are based on real epics, right, happen, right? And then of course, slowly in a period of time, you have the idea of writing sonnets as against the epic, right? Yeah. And uh, out of the epic writers, you have people write sonnets, right? 
and they write epics, literary epics, and they write sonnets together, right? So that's how the the idea of poetry keeps growing, and that's when Chaucer gets influenced, right? <clears throat> now, what is important is he is a courtman, right? And most of the tradition of writing poetry is a very courtly tradition. The sonnet is a very courtly form initially, right? It's created by Giacomo Dallandino, who is a, uh, a kind of uh, a person who works in the courts of uh, the king, Henry the second, Henry the first, right? Maybe Henry the third, I don't know, Italian, right? Yeah. And uh, he works with this kind of uh, king, right? And that's exactly when things are changed, right? Because what is interesting about him is he gets thrown out of the church, excommunicated by the Pope, right? Three times, right? And one time is because he signed a treaty with uh, uh, the Caliph of uh, Bab, right? Or something like that, right? Yeah. So uh, that's when he gets thrown out, but he gets taken back again. And three times he's thrown out and taken back. And you don't have Italy at all the way you have it today. But you have it like a pre-independence, pre-British India, where you have a little scattered little kingdoms all around the place, okay, of different kings, right? You don't have one Italy or a unified Italy. That's after uh, after Garibaldi, right, etc. You have the idea of a unified Italy, right? Yeah. So uh, when we're talking about Petra, uh, when we're talking about uh, Chaucer, Chaucer goes to see what's going on in Italy, right? And the Renaissance is happening, yeah, and you already get people who are writing in their own language. So writing in English is something that's very important, okay? Maybe you say it's borrowed from Italy. Yes, it is, right? Yeah, and then you talk about the French phase and how the troubadour poetry and the, the, the question of uh, uh, chivalry, yeah, from the, front, the French point of view is something that comes into his poetry, right? Yeah, and then of course he returns to England and that's the English phase that Hudson is talking about. And the English phase is important because you're already looking at your own country from uh, an, a, with Italian spectacles and French spectacles, right? Yeah, and that's what's happening to all of us also because at one level we are what you call Macaulay's children, right? Uh, if you are comfortable or not comfortable about it, it's still true because the way we look at our own world, right? Even if you are a Hindu Tvavadi, you're looking at the world from European spectacles, right? And all these people are asserting that, well, we're looking at our own, we're not, we can't, right? We can't go back again and wipe whatever's happened to us out, right? Yeah, and Chaucer can't say, no, 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 I'm going to look at it only from an English point of view, right? Because these are different points of view that you already have experience, right? And that's become a part of you. The Italian experience has gone into your system, especially if you're very young, right? Yeah, the French system has gone into your experience, uh, yeah, because you're actually living with the, the courts and people at a very high level of existence, right? Of the culture, right? So that's something else that happens, right? And of course, 
you also have the idea of uh, imitating their poetry, imitating their lifestyle, yeah, and getting all those things back. And what are you doing? You are enriching your own country, right? So I'm not a purist, right? Yeah, and I don't believe that there's something purely English about Chaucer's poetry, right? Because Chaucer is writing with influences of France and Italy, right? When he's looking at the Englishman, right? I'm not talking about the Frenchification of England by uh, the Normans, right? That is something that happens before Chaucer, right? Yeah, and has already gone into the culture of the people of England much before Chaucer, right? But what happens and what Chaucer brings back is the idea of the Italian, the idea of the French, and how do you put your own existence or your own take on your own life and the, the life of your fellow people into poetry, right? So uh, that's something that's very important because it actually takes us back to that idea of how do you have the influence of Europe or European literature on English literature, right? And Chaucer is one good example, right? It's not that I'm going to translate everything that's in Italian and French. That's one way of it being influenced, right? Because when I read about your culture, right, then my culture, in my language, then my culture is transformed, right? Like if today we translate Derrida and Foucault and all the kind of Western, modern Western thinkers into Marathi or Gujarati or Assamese or Manipuri or anything of the sort, right? Then what is going to happen is a lot of people who read it, of course it'll be diluted, uh, of course it'll be altered, okay? All those kind of things because of language. Uh, we have Wittgenstein's expression that the limits of my language are the limits of my world, right? So when we are talking about the limits of language, we are also talking about how does the language actually enrich in your culture and your language, right? Yeah, so in borrowing from Italy, in borrowing from France, right? In borrowing the literature from all these places, right? And the culture from all these places, the English language gets more elevated, yeah? It's 12.24, can I go on? How many minutes do you want me to go on? Bavia, are you there? Yeah, anybody else? Shall I go on? Or do you want me to stop? Yes or no? Nobody is there. We've already left. Yes, sir, you can go. Pardon? Yeah. Yes, sir, so, you can go. You can go. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, so, what happens is, uh, okay, Bavi has left. Okay. Yeah, maybe he has. Yeah. So, when we're talking about the idea of how does culture influence in literature, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, that's something that's very important, right? And something that you have a lot of cultural resistance also, right? So uh, the, the resistance to uh, Frenchification is something that you see in Shakespeare, right? Yeah. But it's not that the resistance doesn't imply that the culture is being influenced, right? Yeah. So when we're talking about the culture, over here, we're talking about three layers of the culture, right? But the English phase, if you think that that's important, okay, and Chaucer is talking about the English phase, right? What is important is how is the English phase influenced by 
the Italian experience and the French experience, right? Yeah. And the idea is people go and travel to strange and different places, right? And that becomes a way of, and they interact with different kinds of poets from across the globe because what happens is how do you learn from other people, right? How do you learn from the Italians? How do you learn from the French? How do you learn from the Indians? How do you learn from the Russians? How do you learn from the Chinese, right? Yeah, we must remember that Vikram Seth learns Chinese, right? Of course, today we might like to ban the Chinese throughout their, uh, their apps and all those kind of gimmicks that the government is pretending to do, right? I'm saying pretending because they can't, right? Yeah, but there are a lot of people who learn Chinese, right? Like Alexander, uh, like uh, Ezra Pound in the 20th century, right? He actually goes to China, he actually learns from the Japanese, he learns a form of a haiku and he imports it into English, right? Yeah? And maybe and he that transforms the way you look at poetry, right? Yeah. So influences are important, right? Influences are rich in it. They don't they don't do what the Indians uh, who are right wing Indians today think that our culture is getting destroyed, right? No, our culture is not getting destroyed. Our culture is getting richer by uh, getting other people's cultures in, right? Yeah, and I don't think our culture would have been any less rich if uh, 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 any, uh, sorry, uh, uh, I think that our culture would have been poorer if we didn't have biryani, if we didn't have jalebis, if we didn't have potatoes, if we didn't have tomatoes, if we didn't have computers, right? Uh, if we didn't have roads the way we do, right? Of course, we're suffering from the effect of post-colonialism at one level, right? Yeah. And we're also suffering the effect of globalization, Amartya Sen's idea, right? That with the coming of the European, you have globalization taking place. That's how we get our potatoes and tomatoes and chilies, right? Which are so much a part of our life, right? which we don't attribute to Latin America, right? Yeah, but all these things come from Latin America, right? Coffee in Europe comes from Latin America. Our coffee comes from Arabia, right? So the Arabic influence, the Persian influence, all these are enriching experiences, right? So anybody who thinks that, uh, well, uh, we should throw out Persian, we should throw out Arabic, we should throw out Urdu, yeah? What are you doing about it? You're just making your culture into a narrow, stupid culture, right? Yeah. The more you get of other people's culture and the more the culture is alien to your culture, right, the better will your literature be, right? And that's why we study European literature, we study Latin American literature, and we try to study all those kinds of things. And some people, after studying all that, write in their own language, right? Yeah. Uh, so you might write in Gujarati or Marathi or any of those things, right? And you might uh, get a form like the sonnet in Marathi or Gujarati or Bengali, okay? And with that whole kind of experience, right, your culture, your literature is getting richer, right? So uh, that's an important thing to think about when we're talking about Chaucer, right? Yeah, do you want me to stop? It's one hour, right? Yeah, do you want me to stop? Can I go on for at least 10 minutes? Yeah, Bavia, can I go on for 10 minutes? I think he's quit. He just kept his mobile on and uh, there's no place uh, behind him, right? Okay, fine. So that's one of the things that Hudson is talking about. 
The second important point that Hudson is making is about class, right? Because he's talking about Gava, he's talking about Langland, right? And he's talking about the kind of stuff they bring to their poetry as opposed to Chaucer, right? So Chaucer is this very sophisticated kind of person who's traveled France, he's traveled to Italy, he's learned from the Italians, he's learned from the French, right? And then you have other people around his own time and his contemporaries like Gava and like Langland, right? And Gava is actually taking on not the kind of humor that Chaucer has, but he's actually talking about things that are not as good as they seem to be, right? Yeah, so you might like to look at that, right? And uh, you might have the, the idea of uh, what Gava writes, right? And he's also talking about, uh, he's also writing in English, right? And he's also talking about the idea of Wycliffe and the Bible, right? Now, what influence did the Lollards and Wycliffe have on these people, right? Because Wycliffe is actually doing something as big and great as Dante did, right? He's actually writing the Bible or translating the Bible into English, right? And something nobody had a problem with when St. Jerome translated all the different books and made it into one book, right? And that's about the third or fourth century, right? Yeah, when he takes Arabic and it's Hebrew, ancient Arabic, modern Arabic, all those kind of things, right? He takes all those languages and gets them translated at high speed into something which is called the Bible today, right? Yeah, so that nobody has a problem, right? But then people have become stupid, bigoted, right? Just like our present government and the present uh, uh, attitude to people, let's go back to our own culture, right? Yeah, so that's the kind of thing that they do in due course of time and they said no 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 you can't even change one word of the bible but the word the bible is already translated right so how are you saying how do you say you can't change a word right yeah and uh, there might be problems and errors in your translation which is okay right yeah and the idea of course is to say well this is the original bible right which is not true right yeah which is not true at all when you talk about the Latin Vulgate, it's not the original Bible, right? It's original in as much as that's the first kind of Latin work on Christianity that exists, right? Yeah? And uh, first in the sense that it's a, a translation which is a creative work, right? Now, uh, uh, what is the truth of the translation? How much of digressions take place? All those kind of things you might like to think of as translators, right? Yeah. But then when you translate it into English, then what happens is you get a lot of people getting up this old argument saying that, well, it's the language is supposed to be Latin. How are you translating it into English, right? Because we don't know Latin. And if you translate into English, the power of the religion will get, uh, what's, what's this called, diluted. Right? So some people will have that kind of an argument, right? And that's why, uh, or people have the idea that if you translate a book, it's not any more the same, or you have the idea that uh, uh, what is not translatable, right? Yeah? This is translatable. 
right? And there's a lot of stuff which is not translatable, and that's a loss. And that's what we talk about when we talk about translations, right? Yeah, so you think that if I translate a poet, how much of the poet gets lost, right? Nobody thinks of looking at a translation and saying, well, I'm translating, and what I do with the translation is, I'm actually recreating something and giving a new life to it. Sorry for using Dante's term, but that's something important, right? Yep. So, that's one. The other thing is, when you translate into your language, your culture gets richer, your language gets richer, right? And the strength of a culture is by how much you translate into your culture, right? Uh, of course, today, uh, the most, and I think that still is the, the position, right? The most translated into is Italian. Yeah, English might come to second place after the idea that English has become a world language in 1980, right? But otherwise, you get people translating largely into Italian. In India, there are two places, those two states, which translate like crazy into their own language, right? And in record time, right, that is Kerala and Bengal, right? Yeah, and that's why the culture is very vibrant and changes a lot, right? Because when you take ideas from different cultures, right, and people read it in your own language, right, of course it will be translated from the bias of the translator or all that kind of thing, I do agree, but at the same time, the culture changes, right, and somebody might actually go and read it in the original, right, yeah, so that's a possibility, a vague, vague possibility, but the idea is it affects the culture, right, and it's important that it affects the culture so that the culture thinks of how it is and that's how you have the renaissance, right? Yeah, the renaissance is, uh, the Bengal renaissance or the initial renaissance is, this is our culture, right? In the original Italian renaissance, this was our culture, this is our culture, right? So that whole idea of this was our culture, this is our culture gets you into a new literature and a new culture, right? Yeah. And in India, uh, with the Bengal Renaissance, you think about your culture in respect to the European culture, right? Yeah. And you read both the literatures together, you look at both the cultures together, and a new culture emerges, right? Yeah. And you can't stop this process as long as you translate, right? Your culture will change, your culture will become different, right? And that is cultural growth which happens, right? So when you talk about it, uh, you might talk about India in different phases, right? You can talk about the post-Indian phases, right? The Nehruvian phase, the Indira Gandhi phase, the Rahul Gandhi phase, the, what's it? Uh, Manmohan phase and the Modi phase, right? And you can look at it uh, historically at these kind of phases and what happened to India, right? You can also look at poetry in all these phases, right? Yeah, and what happens? Uh, does poetry become more liberal, right? Does poetry become more conservative, right? Yeah, or does, and of course, we've had a long tradition of poetry in India, right? Uh, right, in different phases, right? And you also have uh, people like Jahangir and Akbar uh, making India into a free place, right? And a lot of uh, Persian poets actually come and stay in India because they can write ghazals without having problems uh, because Persia uh, or Iran 
what is called Iran, was Persia, right? Uh, is something that becomes conservative, right? Yeah, in spite of uh, Islam having a lot of radical and a lot of free ideas, okay, at that point of time, suddenly Persia becomes conservative, under a conservative ruler, and a lot of people from Persia migrate into India so that they can write freely their kind of gazals, right? Yeah, for the sake of poetry, they come to India. And what is interesting is, when we talk about what is the influence of Persian poetry on India, I think that's something important, right? What is the influence of Arabic poetry on India? Or what is the influence of the ghazal, a form of poetry on India, right? So you might like to think about all these things. And when we're talking about Hudson and we're talking about Chaucer, the idea is what happens to Italian? He must have definitely known Italian. He must have definitely known French, right? And uh, the idea is how do these rhythms go into this poetry? Right? Yeah, and of course Hudson is talking about the a different direction he's giving because he's talking about end rhymes instead of what you call alliteration. Right? Yeah, so that's something else that you might like to think about because the idea of the form of the poetry also changes, right? Uh, by the time we wait for Wired and Sunny, when they borrow the sonnet, right, from uh, Ita uh, the Italian form, right, they actually give you a new meter, which is called the iambic pentameter today, right? Yeah. So that's something that uh, we try, try to get the sonnet into the English language that happens, right? Yeah. And that's a profound kind of change because that's the standard English meter that people talk in, right? Yeah. So it's not uh, it's poetry which changes the language, right? And it's not language which changes poetry, right? And I think that's something that's important to remember, right? And uh, the literature of another country and the clash with your own language changes the, the very structure of your language, right? And when you speak today, you have to speak in this new form of language, which is a kind of synthesis between the Italian and the English, right? Yeah, so that's something, uh, and that's a, an effort, an experiment, which poets have made, which somehow gets transmitted to all of language, right? All the English language, right? Yeah, so you'll get that much later than Chaucer, and you'll have this kind of a uh, uh, iambic pentameter to uh, whatever uh, uh, you speak, right? Yeah, so uh, I was asked to stop, right? So I think I'll stop now, right? And uh, yeah, it's one hour 45 minutes. Right, and our lecture is supposed to be one hour. Uh, yeah, it's already past time. Sorry, yeah, and I'll stop. All the best for your exam and come again tomorrow. We'll finish the other two bits of Hudson and I have to talk about Gava and I have to talk about Langland and I have to talk about the poetry in Chaucer's age and then go to the next chapter and the next chapter, right? But these are not as difficult as Trevelyan, right? Because we can talk about literature, right? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah.